This is a long paragraph. I do believe it is immensely practical. What I want to do, because you know how I do, I break this stuff up to the point where it's barely even legible in, in English. So I want to read through the whole thing first, trying to make note of the various commas and semicolons and sort of get the, the overall picture and then we'll walk back through it. The confession says, Although true believers be not under the law as a covenant of works to be thereby, thereby justified or condemned, yet it is of great use to them as well as to others in that as a rule of life, informing them of the will of God and their duty, it directs and binds them to walk accordingly. Discovering also the sinful pollutions of their natures, hearts, and lives, so as examining themselves thereby, they may come to further conviction of, humiliation for, and hatred against sin, together with a clearer sight of the need they have of Christ and the perfection of His obedience. It is likewise of use to the regenerate to restrain their corruptions in that it forbids sin. And the threatenings of it serve to show what even their sins deserve, and what afflictions in this life they may expect for them, although freed from the curse and unallayed rigor thereof, the promises of it likewise show them God's approbation of obedience, and what blessings they may expect upon the performance thereof, though not as due to them by the law as a covenant of works. So as man's doing good and refraining from evil, for the law encourageth to the one and deterreth from the other, is no evidence of his being under the law and not under grace. So we're going to look at this paragraph and we'll open with a word of prayer before I begin. Father, we are once again in a great need of your help in focusing the faculties of our bodies as well as our minds to hear from your word and this, what we believe to be a very helpful and useful summary of how we might use your law. I pray that you would make us a people who are apt to use your law for good. We thank you for giving us your law. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Having looked at the law at creation and the law at Sinai, you'll notice, hopefully, one truth has been reiterated and sort of carried through the entire System, and that has been the abiding validity of the moral law. In all times, among all people, in all places, because they exist and because there is a God who made them all, there will always be a law. Now last week we finished paragraph 5 by noticing this phrase, Neither doth Christ in the gospel any way dissolve, but much strengthen this Obligation that is to the use of the moral law of God. The gospel, rather than saying the law is no longer useful, the gospel strengthens the obligation of the law. Now today, we're going to look at how exactly one uses the law. That would be the moral law and even the general equity of the civil law today. So I've entitled this paragraph, The Law for Today. How exactly does one use the law? The paragraph 
that we're going to look at opens up what has classically been referred to as the three uses of the law. This label is actually so formal that you might, in, in conversations or if you're listening to sermons or whatever, you might hear someone simply reference to the second use of the law. And they will just assume that this paragraph is understood and that you know what the second use of the law is in this list. The three uses of the law are basically, one, it is a rule for one's life, two, for exposing one's sin, and then three, for restraining one's corruption. So that, that, those are going to be our three main headings and we'll try to uh, we'll get through this. This whole paragraph. So the first one is a rule of life. Now this seems like the most obvious use of the law. Simply put, we use the law of God as the guide for our own morality. But before getting to that point, the paragraph opens up with a clarification on what we've already learned in the previous paragraph. Namely, although true believers be not under the law as a covenant of works, to be thereby justified or condemned. So they lay it out from the very beginning. Believers are not under the law like Adam was in a covenant of works. And then it sort of explains what that means. To be thereby justified. Believers are not under the law as a means to be declared righteous on account of our obedience. The other side of that is, or to be thereby condemned. Believers are not under the law in any sense to be declared guilty on account of their disobedience and thus uh, losing their salvation or losing eternal life. We're not under the covenant of works. Remember, that's no longer an option. Unbelievers stand in Adam as covenant breakers, but the concept of or the offer of eternal life based on that covenant is no longer proffered to men today. Christians, believers, we stand not in Adam, but in Christ. And in Christ, we are viewed and treated as covenant keepers. But not the covenant of works necessarily, but the covenant of grace. So the idea that somebody might keep the law and and earn eternal life themselves or for themselves by their law keeping is one, not an option, and two, not a possibility. So they lay that out first. We're not in any way implying that somebody might earn their salvation, they might be justified by keeping the law, and a believer even condemned by keeping the law as a covenant of works. And then there are three, four Scripture references. The first one is Romans 6.14, almost as popular in our day as John 3.16. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law but under grace. Now we're going to get to opening up that text a little more later on, but the idea now is you, he says, you are not under law. Believers, you're not under the law in any sense as a covenant of works. We'll get back to that text towards the end. Galatians 2.16 Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law no one will be justified. It's just constantly repeated. Paul wants this to be as clear as anything in the Scriptures. You cannot be justified by works of the law. It's not possible. It's not an option. Nobody's holding that out. It's not available. 
Romans 8.1 shows the opposite. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So if you're a believer, not only are you not under the law as a covenant of works to be justified, you're not under the law as a covenant of works to be condemned. In Christ Jesus, that, that would be true believers. Uh, I told somebody recently, I'm not of the belief that Christians don't sin. When we begin to look at characters in the Scriptures who seem to do really good things, and then it describes some sin, and then the question is, well, are they a Christian or not? Well, it's, it might not be as simple as it may seem because we can't be under the impression that Christians don't sin. The fact that there's sin is not evidence that someone is not a believer because there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Romans 10.4 why is all this true? For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. He Himself has kept the whole law for His people, bore the punishment due for our sins. There is no way to be made right with God by being good. You cannot be good enough to earn a right standing before God. It can't happen. It's not an option. It's not possible. As we said last week, because fallen men by nature tend easily towards self-righteousness and law-keeping as a means of salvation, then when we begin to clarify that repeatedly, justification apart from works of the law, justified apart from works of the law, by works of the law is no man justified, we say that over and over and over. Our tendency is to go to the other extreme and say, okay, I get what you're saying, the law is useless. Wrong. That's not what we're saying. It can tend to produce or lead to an apathetic view of the law. In other words, if, if I can't be saved by it, then it must be useless to me. Now again, that what line of thinking is a sign that someone is literally under the law and not under grace. That's, that's a sign of antinomianism when they begin to, to, to go down that road. We're, so we got to stay away from that, swinging to that other extreme. And that's what the confession does. The fact of the matter is that the law is still profitable. So here's, here's the assertion. Yet, it is of great use to them as well as to others. Believers and unbelievers are actually or can actually benefit from God's law. How is that? In that, as a rule of life. Here's use number one. Of the law of God, it is a rule of life. The overall guideline for moral uprightness. Now again, this seems really obvious. So the point, or the confession at this point, goes on to apply this assertion. It doesn't merely say, the law is good as a, 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 a guide for morality or uprightness. It's, it's useful for your life. And then move on to the next one. It goes on to show... If you believe that, here's how you can actually use it to be a rule of life. It says, as a rule of life, informing them of the will of God. This is really practical. Because the law is the transcript of God's own perfect character, we can use the law to remind us of or discern the will of God. Now, of course, we differentiate between the prescriptive will of God and what would be the hidden will or the uh, providential will of God as it works out, the things that, that we are not to know. One of those, follow me here, the prescriptive will of God, 
we are to know. The decretive will or the hidden will or the providential will of God, we don't know. We can look backwards and see what God has done and say, I guess that must have been God's will for that to take place. But looking forward, there's no way we can know God's hidden will. Okay? Follow me? It's a prescriptive will. We are to know. Hidden will, decretive will, we don't know. So then, discovering, quote, the will of God for my life is not a matter of discovering hidden truths. Right? Because we're not to know that. What God wants us to know is here. If He doesn't want us to know it or we don't need to know it, He's not revealed it to us. This is the problem in the New Testament with the idea of Gnosticism. God has something out there that I've got to find. I've got to go out and, and, and seek, seek it out. And the people who do that, they've got the real knowledge. And then you've got these other losers over here who are just reading this book all the time. That's Gnosticism. We believe in the perspicuity and the sufficiency of Scripture. Which means, whatever God wants us to know about His will for us, He has clearly laid it out for us in His Word. Now that might sound confusing when we, get, we begin to think about, well, what about this instance, and what about this, and all these various things that lay on the horizon for us. I would, I would probably suggest it's actually really simple. We just make it confusing. But it's not. The law of God reveals to us very clearly the will of God for our lives with regard to our actions. It's that simple. We want to know details. Do I, do I, put, on my, do I put on my left shoe first or, or do I put on my right shoe first? That's, that's not a matter of discovering the will of God. Just put your shoes on. See? Just act. Just do. Follow the law of God and act. So the law reveals to us the will of God and their or our duty. Discerning the will of God from the law... And remembering that we are creatures made in His image necessarily implies that knowing the will of God leads directly to our duty before God. If you, you got the will of God, that means duty. That means act upon that. Not, we find in the law not only what God wants and what God wills, but what we must do. We must do what God wills. And it's in His Word, in His law, He tells us. So it shows us the will of God, it shows us our duty, and it directs and binds them to walk accordingly. This is how the law is useful to all men, even unbelievers. Come to the law. I've got someone here. I don't, I don't like this person. Okay, Should I kill this person? Well, the law of God says, here's the will of God for your life. Don't kill that person. Okay, Very beneficial, very useful. Right? That's, it's, it's that simple. Study the law to know God. And in knowing God, we learn of His character. We are His creatures. That binds us to seek to imitate Him. It binds us to walk accordingly. Psalm 119 verse 15. I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. Now notice, you probably know this, in, in these sections of the Psalms, there are these parallel statements. that you, They kind of come together to form a truth. So here we have meditating on the precepts. 
which precept usually brings the idea of law, commandment, statute. But then he has fix my eyes, which would be parallel to meditation. And then he has ways. The precepts are paralleled with the ways of God. In other words, when we study to know the precept or the law of God, we're learning God's ways. How would God act on this earth? Look at His law. That's how He would act. Now, what is the greatest revelation of this? It's the Lord Jesus Christ. What, what was his, his, uh, his guide for life? The law of God. He kept the whole law for His people. God's character in Himself is His will for our own lives. This is why He says throughout the giving of the law, you must therefore be holy as I, the Lord your God, am holy. I'm holy. I'm showing you how I am. Now you be like me. It's that simple. His will is our duty. Knowing His will and our duty, we're thus instructed and constrained to live in a manner that is commensurate to the law. Again, the problem is that we get ourselves in a bind when we become more spiritual than God. So we, got, we all of a sudden got these mysteries that we're trying to figure out. We, we pursue things that God would not have us pursue. We set standards that God would not have us set. We have past sins that we can't change, but they, they produce consequences. And now we begin to struggle with how to deal with these consequences and, and also pursue the things that maybe God hasn't called me to pursue or standards that I've set that maybe God hasn't laid out. We have all of this stuff and we try to then go out to find this mysterious will of God that makes all of that go away. And it's just not there. We create our own maze of confusion and at the end of that maze is God's will for my life. And I've got to find it. Ecclesiastes 12, 13. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep His commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. The will of God for our lives is very, very simple. Fear Him. Keep His commandments. We confuse it because we don't know His law. And when we think about law, and this may come up later... When we think about law, we just think about that list of ten bullet points. One, two, three, or number down to ten. And we're thinking, how in the world can that be exhaustive enough for everything in my life? We think that because we've not studied the law. You, when you give yourself to meditate upon the law of God, you realize that is an exhaustive rule of life. It will govern every area of life. So that's the first use, the law reveals to us or, or, or acts as a rule of life, a guide for us and a moral uprightness in the world. The second use is that the law exposes sin, the sin that remains in us. The confession reads, discovering also the sinful pollutions. When you're reading old literature and you see the word discovering, that, that would be synonymous with our word uncovering. To discover would be to uncover. So it's not like the law, well, it is like the law to us, uncovers our sinful pollutions. It, it exposes. So the law uncovers or exposes the sinful pollutions of their natures, hearts, and lives. Now, the, the nature is the essence of who you are. It makes, makes you what you are as a human being. The law shows us, and I'm going to use an Old Testament phrase here, and hopefully this is kind of a hint into how this works. The law shows us how sin remains woven into the warp and woof of who we are. 
You've probably read the, New, the Old Testament. You thought, what is the warp and the woof? You're talking about different kinds of fabric and how these things go together. What is the warp and the woof? The idea is that sin gets into everything. It's woven and it becomes woven into everything that we do as regards to our nature because it's so deeply rooted. So the law shows that. Your nature, woven into the very fabric of who you are, is corrupt. It also shows us or, or uncovers, exposes the pollutions of our hearts. The heart, you know, is the seat of your affections, your passions, the inner man. The law, because it is spiritual, exposes sins that lie hidden in the unseen man. This is what Christ did in Matthew 5. As he's walking through the Sermon on the Mount, he brings out these laws. You've heard that it was said, but I say unto you. You thought it was, it was just don't kill people, but I'm saying don't even hate your brother in your heart. He takes it deeper. It shows that the, the matters of the law go down below the surface level of just our actions. The Tenth Commandment does this in coveting, as I've said many times. You can covet and not lift a finger. You can covet sitting in your bedroom by yourself with the lights out. That's evidence that, that the law of God constrains not just your actions and your words, but your heart, the inside of you. It's spiritual. And then thirdly is, is the working out of it in our lives. The moment-by-moment moment interaction of a person with the world around him. This might be external actions, but it might also be the inner workings of the heart and the mind as life takes place. The law of God acts as a metal detector that sounds an alarm throughout the day whenever you're tempted to or actually engaging in sinful behavior. How is it that you can come through a sinful act and then look back on it and say, Oh, I didn't even think about it. It's because you haven't been meditating in the law of God. You're meditating upon the law of God, very often, preemptively, the alarm begins to go off. I shouldn't, I shouldn't be here. I shouldn't be doing this. The law seeps down in and reveals sin in our lives. Uncovers the pollutions in these parts of who we are. This is one of the reasons that lost men hate the law. Because they don't want to come to the light. They don't want anything exposing their sinfulness. This is exactly what the law does. Now this should be something that a Christian seeks. We go after the law because we want those things exposed so that they can be uh, eradicated. I hope that as a Christian, you're regularly seeking out and dealing with sins. As a matter of fact, I would say that at, at any given point, perhaps in the distant future or even or distant past or even presently, we ought to have at least some specific sins on our mind that we're aware of and that we're dealing with. We should be able to name that. Like right now, I'm really struggling with blank. I've seen it. God has shown it to me. And I'm, I recognize that. Or I just dealt with this. Being a Christian doesn't mean all of the sin goes away. It means that we, we, we welcome the law of God to reveal to us the sin that remains so that it can be dealt with. All of this is a part of mortifying the deeds of the flesh. And the law of God is the weapon for this. This is what it does. Shows us our sin. Now just like the first use, the confession doesn't just make this assertion, it explains how we go about using the law in this manner. First, so here's, here's how we use the law to uncover or expose our, our sins, the sins in our natures, hearts, and lives. It says, so as examining themselves thereby. This is what we do. We take the law of God. We use it like a mirror. We examine ourselves. God says this. Now let me, let me be honest with myself. 
if the law says you shall not bear false witness, so then I come that, bring that back to myself. Have I been honest in my dealings with men, in my words, in my thoughts? Have I said some things that weren't necessarily lies, but I knew that the person listening would take them a certain way, so I phrased them a certain way to be received differently than what is actually the truth. You see, you begin to analyze yourself. Am I truly an honest person? You just go down the line and, and use the law of God to examine yourself. And the goal is, it says, they may come to further conviction of humiliation for and hatred against sin. So here's the goal. I'm going to use the law, examine myself, and here's what I want. I need to be convicted of my sin. I need the Holy Spirit to convince me of my guilt before God in my own heart so that I concur with God that His law is right, that His judgments are right, and that I am as guilty as He says I am. That's conviction. Then there's humiliation. To be brought low in our own estimation of ourselves. Recognition of sin should humble us at every point. Very often we're not humbled because we don't notice our sinfulness or we might recognize our sins, but because we have not studied them in the light of God's law, we're not humbled as we should be, which would be namely before God the lawgiver. And so we go through this thing where we'll say, yeah, I did this, or I, I struggle with this, or this is one of my sins. And we'll throw it out there because we know it's sinful, and everybody does. We're aware of it because we're human beings, so we know that, that we're sinful. We have these sins, and we say them, but we're not humbled. Deep down, it, we're not broken over that thing. It's just, yeah, this is it. This is, this is a struggle that I have. And, it, and it, there, nothing happens inside of you. That's not real conviction. What we're seeking is that the Spirit would use the law to bring real conviction so that we're really humiliated by our sins. And that doesn't mean embarrassed in front of people, although that, that may be required. That means that we're, we're humbled before God. And then the last thing that this should bring is hatred against sin, a true personal loathing or despising of sin, sin in general, and sins in particular. It's not just that we're, we hate sin, but my sins, specific sins in me. That's what I need to be convicted of, humiliated for, and that's where the hatred needs to be stirred, not just against the sins of other people. We're really good at being really stirred up against the hatred of the sins of other people. Right? We're good at that. We need to be stirred, convicted, humiliated, and hate the sins that are in our own hearts. Now, that doesn't mean we can't look at other people's sins and say, that's sin and I hate that, but... Very often, we're, we're quick to see that before we see this. We ought to hate sin. Examining ourselves by the law helps us to see how grotesque sin is when laid beside God's own character. And I've said this before. We, we look at the lost world and we point out their sins, but we're the ones who claim to have been given light. We're the ones who claim to have been given revelation from God, that we, we have insight into the mysteries of, of Christ, and yet we sin. Psalm 119, verse 128. Therefore, I consider all your precepts to be right. I hate every false way. If you love anything, you're going to hate something else. If you love what's right, you'll hate what's wrong, and that's in you. Now, the confession takes us to Romans 3.20. 
By works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since, here's the phrase, through the law comes knowledge of sin. This is a use of the law. It reveals to us our sin. The the law serves to stir up the waters in our soul that look on the surface very clear. The law stirs that up so that all that muck on the bottom comes to the surface and you say, I'm not drinking that. That's what it does. It, It brings to our minds the knowledge of our sins. The next reference is Romans 7. You might find this humorous, I do. In the confession, it's Romans 7, 7, comma, etc. Like, just keep reading. Just, just take off there and you'll, you'll get the point. I'll read verses 7 to 9. Paul says, What shall we say then? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. Now before we read into this, I'll say, if, if you take this stuff at, at, at face value, like literal surface level face value, none of this is going to make any sense. Paul is clearly making a, a rhetorical point. And I'll explain what that is. But he says, If it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, You shall not covet. Now somebody would read that and say, Well, see right there, that law wasn't written on his heart. Well, that's, that's not what he's getting at. He, he proved that back in chapter 2. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. Again, somebody reads that and they say, See, the law is sinful. The law made Paul sin. That's, that's, not, what he meant to, that's not what he's saying. I think of that idea of produced in me all kinds of covetous. Produced would be like when your kid comes in the house with rocks or acorns in all of their pockets and then those, those are produced in the, the dryer. It's not like they made them. They, it just what they had was shown. Produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I once was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. Since the law is a revelation of an external, objective, moral standard, when it comes into play, it immediately points out specific sins. What the law does is puts a definitive, official label on that action as a sin against a law, an infraction against a lawgiver. It brings all of that to reality. It it wasn't that he had no idea what was happening, but this is one of the the uses of the law. It shows you that thing you just did, that is a sin against that God. Now He's offended at what you just did. That's what it does. It's like a speed limit sign that lets us know we're speeding. You're driving down the road, you haven't seen a bunch of signs, and you're not paying attention. And all of a sudden, you see a sign. Whoop! You realize. It wasn't like the the sign made you go fast. It was just like you realize, oh, there's a a standard here. And so you're, you're made to see that. So we see here one of the primary goals of the second use of the law has a lot to do with shaping our perspective of our own sin. If we're honest, we are usually too lenient with our own sins. We coddle, we nurse, and we justify our sins. We can find we are experts at... You would think that somebody wrote a systematic theology on how to justify and perfect the arts of our sins and, and prettying them up. I don't think they have, but this is, we're, we're good at this. Coddle, nurse, justify. It's okay for me to do that 
but maybe not that person to do that, but in my situation it's different and God understands and, and we, we could go down the list. We often don't recognize the effects of our sins. So this second use of the law thrusts us into the law of God so that we can see how grave our situation is, even as regenerate men and women. Now, an unbeliever would say, well, why do you care? You've already got heaven. Heaven's in the bag. What are you concerned about? But a Christian says, exactly, I'm not concerned with heaven. I'm concerned about being, with being like my Lord. I want to be holy. I want to be rid of sin. And so the inevitable result for the believer of being made aware of our sin is that we're thrust back into the arms of Christ time and time again as we realize how dependent we are upon His grace. That's one of the things of sanctification is as you get older, you just realize how desperate you are and continue to be of of Christ. The confession puts it this way. It, It does all of that together with a clearer sight of the need they have of Christ and the perfection of His obedience. The law shows us, you you need this Savior today worse than you thought you did three years ago, 30 years ago. You need the perfection of His obedience today in the sight of God, just like you needed it when you were first converted. No matter the strides that we make, we remain in constant need of His obedience in our place and will never advance beyond that. You'll never get to the point where you'll say, okay, Christ, I've got it from here. Never. So the the law does that. It it is a rule of life. It shows us or exposes our sin. And then thirdly, the third use of the law is that it acts as a restraint upon our remaining corruptions. The confession says it is likewise of use to the regenerate to restrain their corruptions in that it forbids sin. How simple is this? We've been reconciled to God by the death of His Son. We've been given the Spirit of God. We've got the law of God written upon our hearts. And so whenever the the Word of God forbids a sin, we say, okay, that's simple. It restrains our corruptions. And again, we're given an application of this because we want to know how does this actually work? Is it as simple as do this, don't do this, do this, don't do this? Well, there's a... There's more to it than that. There's an interaction with the law that is required. Remember that a study of the law does not simply mean that we read through the Ten Commandments listed in Exodus 20. The law is exceeding broad. It's expansive. And the concept of law extends even to the threatenings and the curses, or the threatenings and the blessings that are connected with it. That's why for Christ to keep the whole law also requires that He die to suffer the punishment of that law that we had broken, that those go together. He endured the penalty of its legal demands because the legal demands come along with the law. They're all one. And so the threats and the promises of the law of God are also of use to us to restrain our corruptions. How does this work? First, the threatenings. The threatenings of it serve to show what even their sins deserve and what afflictions in this life they may expect, although freed from the curse and unallayed rigor, Thereof, You might have, I know in my, my version of the confession it says unalloyed, which I think is probably a parallel, but the, the word is unallayed. Notice the, the phrase. The threatenings of it, that is the law, serve to show what even their sins deserve. Because what do we tend to think? I'm a Christian now. My sins don't really deserve 
death and punishment. I, I've, been, I've been absolved from that, therefore my sins don't deserve that. But that's not true. Every sin deserves death. The wages of sin is death. Regeneration doesn't make your sins or doesn't cause your sins to cease being sinful or, or sins. So by studying the law of God and seeing the severe punishments that were threatened and eventually delivered to Israel, we're made to see just how seriously God takes sin. Right? You look back through the Scriptures. Scenes like Nadab and Abihu. How does God feel about His worship? Look at Nadab and Abihu. How does God feel about um, sin, lying, stealing, things like that? Look at Achan. Scenes like Korah's rebellion, Uzzah reaching out and touching the ark, things like that. We read those stories and we say, whoa, God takes sin seriously. Crimes which were punishable by death show us there are sins that are worse than others. Are they all sins before God? Yes. Do they all deserve death in the sight of God? Yes. But there are some sins that God said, if that happens, kill them. If this happens, make him give him five oxen back. There are different layers or severities in sins based on the threatenings of the law of God. And that even applies to our own sins. So it shows us what our sins deserve and what afflictions in this life we may expect. Now this is very interesting. This is not a covenant of works. It's not guaranteed. But it is possible that because of sin some temporal punishment comes. Now, is it so blanketed and clear that we can always say, ah, you sinned there and that led to that? No. But if God could bring temporal punishments upon people for sin in the past, He can certainly continue to do it to this day. Though it's not, it doesn't come to us by way of covenant. The afflictions. Um, i got a note here about the Leprosy laws. Think about leprosy as a picture of sin and what would happen to somebody if they got leprosy and maybe they said, I'm not going to the priest. He's going to make me go outside the camp. I'm just going to hang out in the house. So he just sort of lets that thing fester and then eventually word gets out. He's got leprosy. And then they go in and they find out not only does he have it, but it's in all of his pottery and it's in the walls of his house. All right, tear the whole thing down. Send him outside. Now his wife's got to figure out how to build a new house. See, these kind of afflictions would come because of that. It's a picture of sin. When sin is left to fester and hidden, it creeps into and affects all kinds of stuff, and temporal afflictions can come from that. So the law shows us that. Again, although we're freed from the curse and unallayed rigor, for the believer, the recompense may come to us in this life because of our sins, but that does not follow... This, but it does not follow the undiluted rigidity that was tied to the covenants with Adam or Moses. This is our experience. Very often we sin, and whatever might come from that is comparatively light compared to what we deserve. You make a bad financial decision. Well, what do I got to do? Well, I'm just going to have to deal with it for a few years until I get myself out of this hole. Okay? You should have died. He should have killed you, but he didn't. See, it's, it's not according to that same curse and unallayed or, or uh, undiluted rigor of the original, of the giving of the law to Adam. But the idea is that these things may be expected. Now if I know that, I'm going to restrain myself. When, when corruptions begin to come out, I'm going to say, hold on, wait a second. 
I know what God has done to people in the past for this. I'm not going to do that. On the flip side of that, the promises are also still valuable to us. The promises of it likewise show them God's approbation of obedience and what blessings they may expect upon the performance thereof, though not as due to them by the law as a covenant of works. You this constant, this refrain of, it's not a covenant, we're not under the covenant, we're not under the covenant, but these things show us certain things. When we read the promises, we learn that God approves of obedience. When we read of the blessings, we learn of that which God may do for His people. Even in a temporal sense, even though He's not bound to by way of covenant, but He may bless your obedience with a fruitful garden. He can do that. He's done it in the past. Is He bound to? No. Can we look at everybody who's got a fancy, a good-looking garden in the summertime and say, I bet that's a holy... No. But He might. He can. The point is for the Christian, we can look at the law of God Take note of the curses, take note of the blessings, and deduce from that, God does not like sin. God does like obedience. Therefore, I'm going to restrain my corruptions. I'm going to live in a way that is is in conformity to His law. Now, this very last section, it might be my favorite point of the whole paragraph. I love this. This is so contrary to the way that we tend to think. So as man's doing good and refraining from evil... Because the law encourageth to the one and deterreth from the other is no evidence of his being under the law and not under grace. Here's the problem. Because of the great confusion of antinomianism in our day and the setting of the law and the gospel so hard against each other that they never have any relationship whatsoever, Christians today often find themselves at a place of unsettled and almost uncomfortable obedience to God. And and I'll let you be the judge if it's been your experience. But maybe you've had this experience. You desire to obey God. You desire to keep His law. And perhaps you want to use His law in the ways that I just described. And yet, we have this old whisper in the back of our heads that says, you're not under the law, you're under grace. So, so then we're like, whoa, whoa okay, okay. we've got to start reasoning through that text. What does it mean? And typically what that means is from our old, old way of thinking is you're not allowed to obey for the sake of obedience. You can't obey simply because obedience is good and disobedience is bad. In your obedience, you may not take into account anything respecting yourself or potential blessings, or potential curses of God, because then you're being legalistic, and you're bringing yourself back under the yoke of the law. And so then what happens? We falter. We we limp between two opinions. Is Is it really okay for me to consciously say to myself, this is God's law. This is my rule of life. It's threatening. Show me that God doesn't like disobedience. The blessings show me God does approve of obedience. Therefore, I will obey my Lord. Is that acceptable? And we start to think that that's going to be bringing ourselves back under the yoke of bondage. The answer is that's not what, that doesn't mean anything. That's, that's not true. That the confession is saying that doesn't say anything about a person's being under the law and not under grace. I would suggest that living that way, far from bringing one under the yoke of the law, actually evidences the opposite. 
in feeling constrained to the law of God from the heart, and yet under no felt need to do so unto justification, is one of the greatest testimonies to the transforming power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. When somebody says, I'm going to obey because I'm going to obey, because God says to do that and I'm going to do it. And somebody says, well, you're just bringing yourself under the law and you're thinking, no, I'm not. I just, I just desire to obey God. That's evidence of grace at work in someone's heart. Now, unregenerate men may not understand that. And they might look at that and say, oh, you're just doing that because you think you're going to earn your way to heaven. And you're, you say, no, I'm not thinking that way at all. I know that that's not the case. As a matter of fact, as I said recently, very often, even as I'm obeying, I feel the weight of how pitiful my obedience is. There's no way that this could earn me anything. It's so pitiful. But doing good and refraining from evil because the law pushes you to do good and deters you from doing evil doesn't mean that you're, you've been brought back under the, the yoke of the law. As a matter of fact, and I think this first text is, is, is evidence that it's actually evidence that you are under grace. Romans 6, 12-14 Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. What he just said was, law, 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 law. Command, 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 command. Imperative, imperative, imperative. Here's how you're to live. Don't do that, don't do this. Don't do that, don't do this. And notice what he says, for... Sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under the law but under grace. He's talking to Christians. He gives these clear commands regarding sin and righteousness which only make sense in view of the law. And he says, here's why I can tell you to do that. Because you're not under the law, you're under grace. The idea of law versus grace does not deter Paul from forbidding sin or commanding righteousness. On the contrary, it is the very reason why he commands it. How can that be? So contrary to our antinomian society. How can it be? As I've said before, it's because grace is not the rug under which God sweeps our sins and says, don't forget it or don't worry about it, I'll take care of it. Grace is the strength of God's own Spirit working in us to produce obedience that was impossible before. Grace is strength. So Paul says, do this, don't do this, don't do that, and do that because you're not under the law. You're not under the dominion of the law. You're under the dominion of grace. You've got power. You've been given strength. So live what you are. We're not under the dominion of a broken law which is powerless to aid our obedience. We're under the dominion of grace, which is all power in our obedience. To obey the law in this way is evidence of grace, not evidence of a yoke of bondage. So that's one text. And then there's 1 Peter 3, verses 8 to 13. Finally, all of you, notice this. This is, this is going to be law, law, law. Have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. What did he just say? Love your neighbor as yourself. Keep the second table of the law. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. 
For to this you were called. What did he just say? Love your neighbor as yourself. Keep the second table of the law. For, or no, he says, for this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. Do this, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and His ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? He says, do good that you may obtain a blessing. And here are the blessings. You desire to love life, to see good days. You want the eyes of the Lord upon you. You want Him to hear your prayers. You want these blessings? Then do good. Obey. Go back to 1 Peter 3. What did he tell husbands and wives? You need to get along that your prayers may not be hindered. Obey so that you can receive this temporal blessing of answered prayers. Ephesians 6, children obey your parents and the Lord for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise. That it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. These blessings are tied to obedience. In the New Testament, he says obey and blessings will come. Obey and blessings will come. There's nothing wrong with obeying the Lord because of the blessings that come from obedience. That's not legalism. That is Christianity. That's living as a Christian. So let me close with this very very simply. Use the law in these ways. Use it as your rule of life. Use it to examine yourself and allow it to restrain your corruptions, as those justified by faith apart from works of the law, what do we have to lose from using the law in these ways, to use the law lawfully? 